For the conscious consumer, buying local products is a way to shorten that distance between us and what we eat or drink. And maybe even learn more about how it was produced by talking to the people who made it. But what about something like coffee, which doesn't grow anywhere near those of us living in the continental United States? Do you know where your coffee comes from? And if you do know what country it comes from, maybe from the bag or canister you bought your beans in, do you know how it was grown? Or who grew it? Or how it transforms from a berry on a branch to the brown roasted beans you grind for your cup of joe? I'm Jerusha Klemperer, and this is What You're Eating, a project of foodprint.org. We aim to help you understand how your food gets to your plate and see the full impact of the food system on animals, planet, and people. We uncover the problems with the industrial food system and offer examples of more sustainable practices, as well as practical advice for how you can help support a better system through the food that you buy and the system changes you push for. I'm Dakota Kraft. I'm the director of coffee for Onyx Coffee Lab. Onyx Coffee Lab is a uh, specialty coffee roaster in Northwest Arkansas in the United States. We specialize in the best roasted coffee that we can get our hands on. And we have four or five cap bays. Uh, we serve coffee directly to retail customers in Arkansas. And we distribute our most of our roasted coffee all over the US and globally. I was first introduced to Onyx Coffee when we did our episode on milk and plant-based milk, because in one of their cafes, they serve oat milk by default, and people have to pay a surcharge for cow's milk. I was struck by their careful consideration of sustainability, as well as their deep coffee nerdery. I spent so much time in coffee shops in baseball that they just ended up handing me a broom and just being like, here you go, we're going to start paying you to like help out because you're here so often. And that really speaks to the comfortability of third wave coffee and having that, and I, I feel like this term is a bit played out at this point, but having that third place where it's like, you have your home, you have your work, and then you have a spot where you can go and do kind of whatever, like either write or do a little bit more work or even just relax and talk to a friend. And that for me, especially at that time of my life was extremely important. And so that's kind of what drew me in. And then the coffee product was just fascinating in, in and of itself. And that really kind of pulled me in and I, I've been there since. Since then, I was 17 and now I'm 30, so it's been a long time. And that's the thing about the specialty coffee industry is that it is quite a young industry, both in terms of age of people working in it, but also just the industry itself. It's a very new thing. So a lot of people who are in the industry are kind of my age. So I'm actually, I feel like I'm actually like middle-aged for this industry, <laughs> as funny as it sounds. Okay, so you mentioned third wave coffee. For people who don't know, what is third wave coffee? Third wave coffee is sort of a movement that generally values quality and some level of transparency. And when I say some level of transparency, I speak mostly to the first two waves of coffee. Coffee as a global commodity mostly came around the time of World War II and, and mostly to do with the industrial revolution of things moving really quickly, really becoming commodified in the sense that these things need to be more or less like cubed into a thing and then brought into every household. And you really saw that happen around World War II uh, with the rise of just a lot of global uncertainty and a lot of industry at the same time. And so coffee before that was sort of a specialty beverage and it was very regional in the places that it was culturally significant, meaning that it was grown in that place, it was consumed relatively in that place. But of course, we know that coffee has really close ties to colonialism as well, which is a whole other kind of thing. But all of these things kind of wrapped themselves together in the sense that as, as coffee moved into a commodity, it began to lose its luster in the sense that it was an exotic product from somewhere that most people have never been. And for me, like third wave coffee, most of the time I just refer to it as specialty coffee, has kind of tried to bring that back as much as we can. One, to bring honor and kind of value to the places that it's grown and the people who grow it, but also to really showcase its quality and, and coffee is regarded as a really beautiful drink in many, many cultures, especially even in the U.S. I mean, we're a coffee drinking culture. 
as you bring these things forward to people's and integrate it into people's lives, specialty coffee is the driving force behind representing the things that make it so great, which is the people and the plant and, and the places that it comes from. The places that coffee comes from are inhabited primarily by black and brown people. But third wave specialty coffee in this country has tended to be kind of a white hipster thing, with white people dominating the retail space, both behind the counter and in front of it. We wanted to create Coffee Black to provide an opportunity to make Coffee Black again and to imagine what does that look like and what is necessary to create that future for folks of African descent and for people of the world to be able to draw from Black contributions to coffee in a way that's generative. Coffee stay Black just like me. Don't need no sugar, don't need no cream. Coffee stay Black just like me. My name is Bartholomew Jones. I'm an educator. I'm an MC. I'm a coffee nerd. Co-founder of Coffee Black alongside my wife, Renata Henderson, who's our head roaster and COO and HR graphic designer. She does a lot. Yeah, together we started Coffee Black. So there are multiple entry points to my journey into being a coffee nerd. One of them is church as a kid. I was a junior deacon at my church. Very proud about that. One of the cool things about being a junior deacon is that like you could leave and go to like the little coffee stand that was outside of the sanctuary. And um, I used to get like a, a styrofoam cup and fill it with a bunch of cream, powdery cream and sugar, and then like a little bit of coffee and mix it up. Looking back, I feel like that was kind of like a, a trappuccino, you know? I had a mentor in high school, this like really nerdy white guy, love him to death. He was like a film nerd. He was like take me to like these like places that I, I just would never go growing up in my neighborhood in Whitehaven. He was like, let's go to Starbucks. And I remember thinking it was so cool. And I used to order like a strawberry frappuccino and then eventually got real bougie and got the caramel macchiato. You know, I thought I was, I was doing something with that. Who knew I would like, you know, 10 years later, be ranting about how a, a macchiato is is not a large milky drink, right? But um, that was a part of the journey. My dad went to Kenya uh, to do like a, a student exchange program when he was in college at Lemoyne Oin, which is a HBCU here. And so there's also like a layer of him trying to get me to drink Kenyan coffee growing up and me being like, that's gross. I don't want to drink that give me a Frappuccino. And all those things culminate with me going to college at Wheaton College right outside of Chicago and kind of getting immersed into, I guess you could say like the arms, the tangential arms of Chicago specialty coffee, right? All that stuff kind of led me to a point where I was like more curious about my coffee. And so I started like buying whole bean coffee, asking a million questions to every barista I met, which led me to a point where I was like, hmm, all these coffees kind of have names of other countries on it. And a lot of them have the names of African countries on them. I wonder why that is. And so that led me down the journey to create what Coffee Black is today. The best way I can explain Coffee Black is that Coffee Black is a uh, multimedia coffee educational company. So what does that mean, right? We have the goal of using coffee and communicating it about coffee uh, through various mediums with the goal of educating people about coffee's African origins and collectively imagining its African future, right? And so we do that through, of course, roasting and selling beans. We also do apparel. One of our best-selling products was uh, uh, just a post I made that said, love Black people like you love Black coffee. And it was kind of in response to the assassination of George Floyd and our feelings about it. And then that turned into one of our highest grossing products outside of the, the coffee. And that's, we put that on a bunch of stuff, shirts, cups, mugs. I'm working on the tattoo. Uh, we also do music. So all the music for our marketing, we create in-house. Um, I'm a, like I said, I'm a, a MC. I'm an independent hip hop artist and that precedes all my coffee nerdiness. So it's just a part of our DNA. Um, it's how we communicate, it's how we process pain, it's how we imagine. 
And so the songs have become kind of like a soundtrack for the movement. Okay, these days I make beats and not lease on. These days I buy land and plant trees on them. These days late, they the last I won't sleep on them. I want my own when the police come in. Uh-huh. Uh, we're creatives at heart. And so we, you know, we also do film. So we did a documentary about pre-colonial coffee culture. Uh, we're working on a docu-series about that, kind of following the slave trade through coffee. Ethiopian coffee is a gateway drug. The coffee plant was stolen from Africa in 1616 by two Dutch spies. Three years later, the first stolen bodies landed in Jamestown, Virginia. And then we also have a cafe space in our neighborhood. Hey, yo, welcome to the Anti-Gentrification Coffee Club. I know, it's kind of crazy. We also call it the AGCC for short, or some folks say the not a coffee shop, you know what I mean? But whatever you call it, we're home to your friendly neighborhood hope dealers. Brought to you by the good people at Coffee Black. We got your hood coffee vibes popping every single day of the week, family. We do educational opportunities. We're on the third round, third year of an internship in our community where we train people from the city of African descent about coffee's origin, its history. We do entrepreneurship training, CPG, people who are interested in like kind of doing consumer packaged goods through their website to make a social impact. Yeah, all that stuff kind of happens inside of Coffee Black. Yeah, we, we do a lot. We do do a lot. So much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling very lazy right now. Thank you. Um. <laughs> I'm thinking community development. I'm like, nobody is, is helping my community. There's like an injustice here. And so I'm trying to solve this injustice by providing resources, by providing experiences, uh, by providing products that would like make people feel seen and make people feel like it was a safe space to be curious and that there was something worth being curious about. When you look at history, the original finished product, right? The, the, the Ethiopian coffee ceremony was the first finished product in coffee history. Like Ethiopian people discovered the coffee and developed a myriad of beautiful and interesting ways to present that raw product to the world in a place where it could be consumed. But when coffee was taken uh, from the African continent and then taken from the country of Yemen by the Dutch, those ways were not deemed interesting enough to continue as it was presented to the world. And so like the black foundations of coffee became invisible. And I think that's one of, if I dip into my sociology bag, shout out to sociology miners out here, one of the unfortunate side effects of consumerism and hypercapitalism is that it renders the cultural roots of something invisible once it enters the market so that it can kind of be presented as a clean slate for people to consume. And I just think that's boring. You know, I think that's like a much less interesting version of the world. And that's not the world that I care to participate in. And so Coffee Black has been our endeavor to, through the very small thing of coffee, introduce more curiosity about what people of African descent have to contribute to our collective palate. Not only is coffee's history as an agricultural product unknown to the average coffee drinker, but most people probably don't even know the story of the precise coffee or latte right in front of them. You might see a country of origin on the packaging, like Ethiopia, Brazil, Guatemala, but how did it get from there to you? And why is some coffee pretty cheap and some quite a bit more expensive? And why is there so much flavor variety in the different coffee you buy and drink? I asked both Bartholomew and Dakota to break down the coffee supply chain for us. Coffee comes from what is often referred to as the coffee growing belt in the world. So oftentimes, especially in specialty coffee companies, the supply chain is referred to as seed to cup. So wherever it was grown and however it got there is the entire supply chain. I'm sure with the research that you've done for this, that you've already discovered that this is a complex issue and a complex supply chain. And really like the answer to the question, where does our coffee come from is the whole driving force behind this specialty coffee movement. And more specifically, at Onyx, our coffee comes from kind of all over the globe. I think at the moment, I don't even have a secure count on how many countries we work in, but it's as many as 12. And I travel to most of those countries myself. I'll fly there. I'll spend time on farms. I'll spend time with coffee producers. And we'll taste coffee together. We'll talk about you know our needs, our wants. We'll figure out how to do business together. And then... From there, it's my job to get it into 
the US so we can roast it and distribute it. So coffee is often, most often grown in, and I'm going to be really general here, in South America, Central America, and East Africa. Those are really the driving regions of high-end specialty coffee. Now, Vietnam and some other places of that nature grow a large amount of coffee, which is cafea canifora, which is often referred to as robusta coffee, which is a higher caffeine content, also a higher bitterness. So it often goes into a really large, big instant coffee or some type of large coffee blend, which is not really what specialty coffee is about. So oftentimes we'll gravitate towards those places in South America, places in East Africa and Central America. Our two largest countries, which I'll focus on just for the ease of simplicity in this conversation, is Ethiopia and Colombia. Now, Colombia is a bit easier to get coffee into the U.S. because we have really easy supply chain routes. But oftentimes, coffee is grown on a small farm and either consolidated into a larger blend or sold as what we refer to as a micro lot. And those micro lots are usually higher price, higher quality, and super traceable meaning that we know who grew it, how it was grown, how it was processed, what it is. And those things are really highly valued in the specialty coffee industry. It's kind of like the pinnacle of what specialty coffee and third-rate coffee is driving at. Once that coffee is harvested, it also has a, a window in which you're going to want to use it to have a high enough quality in order to really, you know, make it a special product for people. It's not always the most interesting discussion that you can have of, of trying to get coffee into the U.S. as fast as possible. But really, it's almost just as important as how it's roasted and how it's served. I spent a lot of time just figuring out supply chain issues and really focusing on how we can get that coffee into the U.S. as fast as possible. Is coffee always roasted at its destination or is there any part of the supply chain that it's like, oh, no, and then they roast all that and maybe it leaves the country roasted as well? 100% of the coffee I get is green. And really the thought process behind that is that shelf stability. So what we know about coffee and post-service processing is that coffee as an agricultural product, it starts out very wet and then ends up very dry at the end of it. So all coffees exported anywhere from 9% to about 12% moisture content, which we found to be more or less shelf stable in terms of what we refer to as lipid oxidation, meaning that once we get the coffee, we'll taste it. And if it tastes like cardboard or like paper or just kind of generally woody and hollow, that's going to be lipid oxidation and that's going to be either dried incorrectly or it's just old. I mean, coffee has a shelf life just like anything else, um, be it spice or flour or grain or any of these things that you often have in your cupboard that could be years and years old that you're unaware of. That is kind of the force behind exporting green coffee is keeping it shelf stable and it's in a hermetically sealed bag. Taking those green coffees and running them through a roaster does a number of things. It transforms coffee from an insoluble, hard seed that is not usable for much into a beautiful beverage that is done through a chemical change. Some drying happens during the roasting process, but really what happens is this Maillard reaction that is what we call the sugar brownie phase, which will take all of these acids and sugars and convert them into something that's water soluble and, and into a beautiful beverage. So roasters buy green coffee and roast it to have a number of variables controlled in their house, meaning cash flow is, is a little easier to operate when you have green coffee versus buying roasted from another person, especially if you're a cafe. But also you kind of get to own your own destiny as far as the outcome of your coffee. You can buy a coffee and I could give it to three of my friends who are also roasters and we're going to roast them different ways. And that's really an expression of what we find in the coffee and how we want to represent it. Oftentimes roasting is sort of, it's like the lens in which you view the coffee. So there are a number of ways to do that. I always kind of go the route of like what I would say is peak enzymatics, which just mean like you're going to get like the most beautiful aroma while also having a balanced coffee experience, meaning like all these, the acidity and the sweetness and the aftertaste, all of those things are going to be harmonious while also representing exactly what I hope 
was grown at the farm and we're not doing harm in the terms of maybe over roasting or under roasting or any of that. It's just going to be like a beautiful coffee experience. My goal is that you don't even think about how this was roasted because it doesn't even come into your mind. And what are the factors a roaster can play around with? The things that we focus on are duration of roast. So anywhere from let's say seven and a half to 15 minutes is is our batch duration, depending on the size of the batch and the size of the coffee roaster we're using. Um, and then you have temperature. So temperature of when we put it in and then when it comes out. And that those two things work together in terms of getting data on a screen that we can interpret to say, are we risking this like we roasted it before in terms of consistency? Because people oftentimes come back to us for the same coffee over and over. We have subscription services and people who come into our cafes every day and expect a very similar product than the one that they first fell in love with. And we take data on many points of the roast in order to interpret that and roast it exactly how we wanted it. For Coffee Black, the supply chain is very similar, but it's been set up with some very intentional criteria in mind. Everyone they partner with is of African descent. The supply chain starts in the town of Uraga, which is in the Guji zone of a part of Ethiopia called Aromia, which is in the southern region of the country. Um, it starts with indigenous farmers who are growing the coffee there. They're contributing to a collective lot called the Green Spring Lot. Uh, that lot is led, kind of the general area of the land is led and cared for by a farmer named Tamaru, who we had the pleasure of eating hot water cornbread and greens with in his house, which was a big surprise for me because I didn't know that... Uh, that was an African thing to do, but apparently that my grandmother had been keeping this very African tradition alive all those years in Alabama. Uh, and he and his family are leading that lot. You have Ture Waji, who is the uh, community leader. He's also an agronomist. He's also like a coffee scientist. And he's making sure that, you know, the farmers have access to the educational resources and things they need to be able to accurately farm and adjust to environmental changes and things like that. He also owns Suko Coffee, which is the company that does a lot of the milling of the coffee. So milling basically means coffee starts off as a cherry. If you look at my shirt, uh, it says coffee is an African fruit, right? So there's a picture of the, the fruit. Uh, that fruit is then taken to uh, washing stations or drying stations where it's set out on these large raised beds where it's placed in the sun. And if you're doing a natural process coffee, you leave the flesh of the fruit on and it dries onto the seed. It contributes like a really beautiful acidity. And Ture Waji is known worldwide for the quality, like the cleanliness. If you're a wine person, right, if you ever had a natural wine, uh, you can know that those wines can be a bit muddy. There is more acidity. There's more there. But it's also like you kind of deal with the, the good and the bad. Right. So I, the best way I can contribute is like culinary static. Right. There's a lot of other things going on around the flavors that you're looking for. And sometimes people like that. And sometimes people don't. Ture Waji is known for the clarity of the natural processed coffees that he produces. And a lot of that goes into cherry selection. A lot of that goes into uh, sorting. A lot of that goes into the growing practices. He's a genius. And I do not, uh, I don't want to pretend to understand his process, but I did have the opportunity for him to explain it to me twice, and I got maybe 1% of that. So that's what you're getting right now. So this is all before the coffee cherries leave the town of Uraga, right? So this is happening once the products are finished and they've removed either the dried uh, mucilage is the word for it around the coffee seed. It's not a bean, it's a seed. Uh, beans grow in pods and seeds grow inside of a stone fruit. Once all that happens, uh, it's shipped off to Addis Ababa, which is the capital of Ethiopia, where Mike Memo, who owns Addis Exporters, receives those seeds from the countryside. They're in, you know, 60 kg burlap bags. Um, and so those burlap bags are then stored. You know, they do quality control. They may work with somebody like uh, Gaytu Bukele, who's a world-renowned agronomist and coffee scientist as well, who he, he actually worked for counterculture for a while too and basically wrote the book literally on Ethiopian coffee. Uh, you should check it out. And so he'll go, they'll go through this process called cupping, which does quality control. Essentially for coffee, the person who's the cupper is called a Q grader, which is like the coffee equivalent to a sommelier and wine. And so that person is going to do a rigorous amount of uh, testing and examination and brewing to make sure that the seeds are up to par. 
Uh, then once that happens, the coffee is purchased by Equatorial Coffee Consultants, which are two African-American brothers who live in the States that we partner with, and they ship the coffee to America, and then we buy the coffee from them. There's a ton of variables involved from like how the coffee grows, to what grows around the coffee, to how the coffee is picked, to how it's processed, to how it's uh, shipped, to how it's stored, to how it's roasted, and to how it's brewed. And then what you, if you add anything to it after it's brewed, all those things come into play, like why we picked the coffee that we picked. And specifically this one, I think is very uh, framework shifting from what people think a coffee should taste like. My wife, who's our coffee roaster, does a ton of work to create like a really interesting flavor profile, one that has body, which I think is what people want out of coffee when they say they want bold coffee. They really want coffee. Well, they generally mean three different things. But um, one of the things people want is like a, a good mouthfeel or viscosity is like the nerdy term you would use. And so we do a lot of work. We use air roasting specifically outside of drum roasting to because we believe it contributes to like a more a fuller mouthfeel. Uh, but then we also roast the coffee a bit lighter than most people are used to because that preserves a lot of the natural acidic compounds within the coffee that can contribute to like a more fruit forward and floral taste in the cup. And we worked really hard to find partners in our supply chain who are all of African descent. And uh, you may be asking, like, why is that important? Coffee is a $400 billion industry globally. And currently, according to the president of Uganda, less than 1% of that money goes to continental Africans. If you were to include the diaspora, so Afro-Colombians, Afro-Brazilians, people in the Caribbean, African-Americans, I don't imagine that number gets much larger considering the history of how those people of African descent ended up in these countries, slavery, right? So then the question is, well, where is the money going? Well, some of the money is going to producing countries that deserve that money. We don't want any farmers to be paid less. I believe all farmers need to be paid more. Uh, but a lot of the money is going to middlemen and going to people of, I guess you could say, colonial descent, European countries, American countries that were established at the beginning of coffee becoming a, a global product. And these countries don't really do anything more than pass the buck along. And they control with a pretty tight grip access to a lot of the middleman industries, exporting, importing, coffee trading, and don't allow people of African descent or any farmers, to be honest, to get in on the money that's made there, which is why you've heard the term direct trade become very popular because people want to pay the farmer directly. Now, what we claim to do is not direct trade. Direct trade in a lot of ways is extremely difficult for a small business, much less a small black business. You essentially need to be able to buy boats uh, or rent boats to ship large shipping containers full of $150,000 of green coffee across the ocean. We are not at that point yet. Uh, but what we did want to do is make sure everybody we were spending money with were a part of the community we wanted to empower. And so if you think about buying locally, right, the whole idea of buying locally is not to exclude anybody else, but it's to say, let's make sure the money we spend supports this specific community, right? Not to the exclusion of others, but to in intentionally include people who have traditionally been excluded because of hyper-capitalism and giant uh, commercial entities and corporations that control the market. And so by us choosing to say, let's be even more specific and partner all the way from seed to cup, literally with people of African descent, we're making sure that this money from this particular seed that was discovered in Africa is going in some small way to benefit people who come from that community as well. It struck me in talking to these two men who care about their product so intensely and who really try to honor the work that the farmers have put into this crop that their coffee has no fair trade certifications. And that left me wondering about what role those labels and certifications play in the world of coffee right now, and if they're even useful or meaningful. My name is Anna Canning, and uh, I'm currently the Director of Communications at the Worker-Driven Social Responsibility Network, but I'm probably here today because I spent probably a dozen years in the coffee industry, really having done pretty much everything from like buying green coffee, the roasting, the distribution of the coffee, done some work with like sales and distribution, helped open a coffee shop, kind of everything along the way, except like the actual picking of the coffee itself. And, you know, really doing that with companies who are working in within a system of fair trade and really like trying to change the giant imbalances that we see in the coffee industry, the global food system, the global trade systems. 
so that's part of my background. And then, you know, I ended up working for a number of years for a watchdog of ethical labels. So I spent a lot of time, you know, looking at all the different labels that exist and ranking and comparing them. And, you know, coming out of those, that background, I think I have a lot of thoughts on this whole model of like ethical labels and certifications. And, you know, the ways in which it doesn't work on a number of levels, the ways in which it's really failing to do the things that it claims to do. Overall in the world, about 70% of the world's coffee is grown by small scale farmers. And that's like farmers who are tending the average is about 2.2 hectares, so that's around five acres of land. So, you know, that's really small. In the U.S., we would probably talk about those people as like hobby farmers, but those are people who are really trying to make a living off of that little piece of land and the crop that they're cultivating on it. So if we're talking about fair pay, fair prices, the majority of those people who are growing coffee in the world are thinking about how they make their living is how much they get per pound for their crop. So that's when we talk about a fair price per pound. That other 30% is plantations, large scale farms where hired labor is a much bigger part of the labor equation. And that's where you start talking about fair wages. We can get blurry in there. There's definitely hired labor that participates some in small scale farms. And honestly, like most certification systems actually just like those people like really recede to the sidelines and they don't get covered much because they are at the sort of lowest tier. And again, it's really a question of, you know, who has a seat at the table just determining standards and those people are not at the table at all. Fair trade labels are intended to ensure that producers in the global south get a more equitable place to trade their goods than they can normally access on the global commodity market. And while fair trade can cover any number of items in the food system, it tends to focus on tropical products like cocoa, coffee, bananas. But there isn't just one fair trade certification. There are a few, and they all have similar names and similar logos. But fair trade arrangements usually group producers or workers together into cooperatives where they can ensure that they're meeting certain production standards and targets for worker welfare. And then businesses and brands that buy from fair trade producers agree to pay a higher price for those goods, with the money going back to the producers. So coffee is one of those crops that's traded on global commodity markets, right? So you hear, you know, price of oil goes up, down. That happens with coffee, too. And coffee is traded on commodity market exchanges in New York and London. And, you know, some of the things that you would expect that make the price go up and down, right? Like weather means a good crop. Prices go down, high supply. Bad year, prices go up. But then there's also stuff that's just really detached from coffee farmers' realities that, you know, I was in the coffee industry back in the financial crisis where suddenly real estate was going, you know, just crashing and suddenly all these pension funds and stuff were investing in commodity markets as this like new stable thing, which meant like all this market volatility, market prices going up and down, nothing to do with coffee farmers and their lives are just, you know, they are at the end of the chain just getting jerked around. I think that overall, throughout the history of coffee, coffee farmers have really been set up to be price takers, not people who get to choose what price they are charging for their product. And, you know, part of that is like coffee is fundamentally a colonial crop, a crop that is rooted in colonialism. It has its origins in Ethiopia and then was spread by colonial traders around the globe. And every community that you go into that grows coffee, there's kind of a different relationship that has its roots really in that. And, you know, I was talking about how I spent a lot of time like ranking certification labels and kind of doing that watchdog work. And that really led me to the fundamental recognition that the certification model 
doesn't work on a number of levels, that it's just failing to do the things it claims to do. And, you know, one of the problems is like when you're ranking certification labels, like there are definitely differences between those labels that you see on a package and what they mean. But the ones with the stronger standards are barely on the shelf. Small producer symbol, probably the highest standard for coffee labels. What the label looks like, there's like two little hands snaking around. It says small producers fair trade on it. And, you know, I went and looked. And at this point, there is one very small company in the entirety of the U.S. that is using that label. Right. And so... <laughs> <laughs> that is not even a practical recommendation for folks. And the ones with the weaker standards dominate the market. You know, that really gets to the heart of the issue, right? To clarify, Canning is talking here about fair trade certifications. And she says that as a result of this lack of faith in that fair trade system, a lot of third wave and specialty coffee has kind of moved past those fair trade certifications and just established direct relationships with the farmers. Certification has been relegated to a PR exercise and has so much more to do with marketing at this point than it does with changing the purchasing practices of a corporation. And so, you know, there's like this, you know, we all know there is this global race to the bottom for lower prices and lower working conditions across pretty much every industry at this point. And Likewise, there is a race to the bottom for certifications, which means that the certifications with lower standards and lower requirements tend to win out. That's like one key takeaway for me from that watchdog work. And the second key takeaway is really, you know, the model is flawed because the idea that we can take the real work of transforming our exploitative food system and the unequal system of global trade and put all that onto one person's choice in the grocery store, and then that those little choices will add up and trickle down to farmers and workers. You know, there is a decade of research now to show that that trickle down isn't happening and that the promises of certification are not being kept for farmers, for workers, for consumers. And academic researchers have like really made that step to saying like certification does not work. But I would say the corporate social responsibility industry hasn't gotten there yet. Except, you know, in coffee, I think that conversation is further along, which has led to some other, you know, challenges really for all of us trying to make sense of it. At the beginning, you would find fair trade products in these little like fair trade shops, right? So you would be like, I am going to go and get my fair trade things. And that would happen outside of where you would go to get your groceries. So the idea of certification initially was we can mainstream these products is the language often used around it, put them onto the shelf beside, you know, conventional coffee and show people that there's a difference. You know, at this point, <laughs> I think I was saying, right, like it's the differences between those labels have become really blurred. Um, you know, a key talking point for fair trade for a long time was that it meant fair prices for farmers. But I would say that at this point, we're so far from that being universally true about what it means to say something is fair trade. That I talked about how coffee is traded on the commodity market, which fluctuates really wildly. So one of the key parts of fair trade certification was to establish a fair trade minimum price. So, you know, commodity market goes up, goes down. There is at least a stable minimum that people could count on. But, you know, that price has stagnated for years compared to rising costs. That dynamic is actually playing out right now that, you know, the international fair trade system has just gone forward with raising that price. And, you know, this month there's actually like drama because Fair Trade USA, the big U.S. certifier, has chosen to freeze those prices. The issue seems to be, is that baseline wage a living one? And have these certifications actually raised the standard of living enough for coffee farmers? And many critics say no. She did mention that there are cooperatives that work better for farmers and specifically called out Equal Exchange Coffee, which is available at a lot of grocery stores, as a decent option on that front. Now, what about some of the other labels and certifications you might see at the grocery store, like USDA Certified Organic or the label Shade Grown? Coffee is naturally an understory plant. 
coffee grows in this very specific area around the equator. In the process of kind of industrialization, to make it more compatible with large-scale production, it's been hybridized to be adapted to more growing in full sun. To grow coffee organically without chemical pesticides, synthetic pesticides and fertilizers, means you have to grow it in a setting that is a little closer to what it's naturally adapted to. You're using this word understory for people who don't know. What does this mean? Yeah. So if you're thinking about a forest, right, there's like the canopy up top, the big tall trees. And then coffee itself is more of a shrub, a shorter bush that grows underneath those big trees. So that would be the understory of a forest. So, you know, I've gone to like coffee farms and you'll see, you know, bananas, oranges, various nitrogen-fixing trees all grown around an undercrop of coffee. So hearing that or seeing on a label that coffee has been shade-grown is kind of a nod to the larger practices. It's telling you that it was grown in that sort of more diverse ecosystem instead of more like a monocrop? Is that the idea? It really has no technical definition that is set in a standard for what shade grown means. That I've personally been to things that are called shade grown that look really different. Like it can be like some trees on the sidelines. It can be like a thick cover in terms of there being actual standards. Like I wouldn't say being grown organically is synonymous with being shade grown, but there's a lot of chance for there to be more overlap there. I think one of the values of organic in coffee is, you know, the rules around there's no synthetic pesticides or fertilizers used for the last three years. So integrated pest management, organic fertilizers. There are some requirements for shade in that system. Organic doesn't necessarily mean the coffee is healthier for you, but it does mean that it's healthier for the people in the environment who grew it. And that's a big deal because overall on our planet, right, like we are in a climate crisis and deforestation is one of the things that is driving that. But, you know, the presence of you know, trees and all, all of that and a crop that people can grow without more deforestation or even grow as part of a reforestation project can really be part of a climate solution. So I think as we're thinking about, you know, organic, things around that, that is a value that we can look for, I think, as we're choosing coffee that doesn't have a real <laughs> downside to it. Well, there's always a downside. I take that back. Organic certification can definitely be inaccessible to very small-scale farms, especially if they don't have a market associated with it. Organic standards do not require that buyers pay more for farmers, that they don't are not required to be compensated for the additional work of paperwork of organic certification or cultivating to a higher standard. So that's a big downside of that system. is by being this intentional about our production and our process and our partners is generated trust in our consumers. Our consumers trust us to say, hey, I might not even drink coffee. I might not even like coffee, but you care this much about me as a person of African descent, I'm willing to try it. Or you care this much about me as a person who didn't really care about coffee, but I care about social justice. I care about helping to be on the right side of history. I don't really think that much about coffee, but you obviously did, and there must be a reason for it. I'll try it. And then what people find is because we're sourcing specialty grade coffee that scores basically an 88 out of 100 on a cupping score by those individuals I mentioned who are the Q graders. Most commodity coffee, for example, like Folgers, things like that are like 60s, 70s right so 88 is like a very very so one percent of coffee in the world right by doing the work to also make sure the coffee is very high quality people find out wow this coffee is actually the most amazing coffee i've ever had in my life and it doesn't take anything like what i hated about coffee you know that's a nice little side effect there of the intention as well is the quality and so then people turn into lifelong consumers and they become a part of a supply chain that is intentionally investing in people of african descent that also is taking 10% of the profit from that 
seed and reinvesting it back into the communities that we come from. So half of that goes to the community in Guji to invest and compensate them for their contributions and their marketing analysis and their pictures and all those things. Uh, and the other half goes into the hood in Memphis, where we do a lot of free educational opportunities like the internship and, you know, a pay what you can uh, drip option here at our cafe. All that kind of stuff comes from the supply chain that we've built out. Listening to Bartholomew talk about how his company invests in his local community, I started to wonder what it means for coffee to be local. In a place like Tennessee or Arkansas or California or New York, when coffee doesn't grow in any of these places. Part of that can be simply if it is roasted locally, but it can extend beyond that. We have all of these systems that we've kind of built over the last, especially over the last century, if not two centuries, of these strange colonial systems in which coffee came from all over the world and ended up in people's houses. And now people are starting to look at food supply systems and supply chains and saying, you know what, like, I actually probably shouldn't be able to get mangoes in Arkansas at this time of the year. <laughs> and that just means like, where were these grown? How were they grown? And how do they get here? And also like, do I need this? I spend a lot of time, just kind of my free time, I spend a lot of time with local farmers and people who, who do food systems that are hyper-local, meaning that they run CSAs and they do all these things, and I find it super interesting. And I myself grow a little bit of food at my house, just because I am fascinated with that system, and I do think a lot about our food chain systems. But coffee, I have to kind of hold separate from that, meaning that I know that this coffee grown in El Salvador <laughs> needs to get to us, and... That is by no means local, but you can treat coffee like it's a local product by giving it the same care that you would when you're buying things at the farmer's market. People oftentimes now, especially the ones who are inspired by the people doing modern work in food, food systems, oftentimes they'll know their producers. It feels really good as part of the human experience to consume a product where you're like, you know what, I know who grew this and I care for them and I pay them, you know, a good wage. And that's really what specialty coffee is about is, is creating what we now live in as a global society and like a global market is creating that global market into more or less a local market where I know that Raul Rivera grew this coffee in, in Santa Rosa in El Salvador. And that the person who's buying it on behalf of me who wants it is doing a great job and, and caring for him and, and making sure that these supply chain systems are taken care of. And that's as local as it's going to get until we start figuring out how to grow coffee in our backyards, which I don't think is going to happen. But the other side of that is buying coffee from a roaster that, you know, you're not shipping roasted coffee all over. If you're wanting to be that hyper local and sensitive person where you are thinking about caring for your community, um, there are a lot of coffee roasters in the U.S. that are doing great work and partnering with great, great producers and and not buying from big, big, big conglomerates that don't have a name on the bag and don't value coffee producers. The most important part of being accessible is being able to be accessed easily. And so we moved into our neighborhood, right? We we moved into this neighborhood that I went to high school in, uh, low income you know, historically affected by redlining, we moved there, right? So one, I'm you can touch me, I'm your neighbor, right? I'm not a guy driving from the suburbs to talk about something, I live here. And so the issues we face, I took those same issues on, my family is there, so on and so forth. Number two is we put our shop in our neighborhood. So I didn't put my shop downtown, we call it not, it's a coffee club, but we didn't put it downtown, we didn't put it you know, in the hipstery kind of midtown gentrified, we, we went into our neighborhood where there's really not a market for coffee. And we decided to do the hard work of like, let me just go talk to people and tell them about what's going on and let them try it for free. And if you don't like it, cool. And if you like it, great. We listen to people. But like when I started off, I was very anti-espresso. I was very anti, yeah, pretty much anything colonial. So I was like, we can't use the espresso machine, that's the colonizer's machine. Uh, we're look at the language, espresso, macchiato, cappuccino. We're going to use African words and go back to like traditional indigenous terms for things. And, you know, some of that stuff is still around. But when you serve a like a brown sugar oat milk latte to my neighbor who's been drinking all night and you just see a smile on his face, like I'm like, ah, OK, I'm, I'm being an ideologue here. Uh, let me chill out. Uh, and so I think the community kind of helps to give you feedback on that. It's also led us to create 
innovative product. So one product I'm really proud of is called Gold Brew. Gold Brew is a product to me that makes what I have grown to love about coffee accessible to people who don't have the privilege to be able to spend seven years building their palate, right? To really get to some of these harder to discern flavor flavonoids uh, within coffee, right? And coffee is a very complex fruit. And so what I've decided is like, well, we need to basically take those things I like about coffee, the florality, the acidity, uh, the sweetness, and turn it up, turn those things up, but turn it up without adding cream and sugar. So if I want florality, I'm not going to add, you know, a floral creamer into it to try to turn it up. How do we do that subtly, allowing you to kind of like piggyback on the additives to get to the natural notes? So Gold Brew was a drink we created and we spent a lot of time playing around with like low glycemic index sweeteners and natural citric acid from other fruits that would complement what we love about Guji Mane. And what I love about Guji Mane is like, Currently, it has these really beautiful passion fruit notes and it has this interesting kind of like florality there with the passion fruit. There's like Concord grape kind of sweetness, acidity to it. There's like dark chocolate vibe. How do you let somebody taste that without making them go through like a coffee tasting class for two years? Right. So we basically made a drink that adds flavor modules there, essentially, uh, and allows people to experience it. And what is essentially like a low glycemic index coffee refresher. In teaching, we call it scaffolding, right? It's kind of like a scaffold uh, into what I find interesting about coffee. So when I give this to somebody and they say, wait, this is coffee, that is the first step to me to everything else we want to do. It's about more than just enjoying coffee with no sugar and cream and enjoying Black coffee with no sugar and cream, but it's about enjoying ourselves, enjoying Blackness and the world being able to see Blackness from a perspective, not as something that's bitter and astringent and something to be tamed and to be diluted, but as something that's beautiful and bright and floral and complicated and complex and something that's worth enjoying on its own on the ground that God created it on. The coffee plant was discovered in 850 BC by a goat herder in Ethiopia and has developed into a myriad of beautiful traditions. But the coffee ceremony, I think, is one that is pretty consistent across all the 80 different ethnicities in Ethiopia. It's like a way to make coffee more than just a beverage, but really to become like a community foundation and a standpoint for how we think about what the community is supposed to do. In the Guji zone specifically, there's a blessing called Bunafi Nagea Hindabina, which means may your house lack no coffee nor peace. And this blessing is roughly 2000 years old. And it comes from a, a traditional roasting method called Bunakala, which comes out of the Guji zone. And uh, the idea is that coffee represents peace. There's an idea that coffee kind of grew from the tears of, of God and that it was given to produce peace between humans and creation and humans and each other. But the idea is that there should always be peace when coffee is consumed. And it kind of serves as a metric to know if we're consuming it correctly, right? And just the idea that there is a correct way and an incorrect way, I think it's kind of a, a, a radical notion in this space. But like, yo, if you're consuming it and the people around you don't have peace, stop. Reset, dialogue, and then let's get back into enjoying this together. What You're Eating is produced by Nathan Dalton and Foodprint.org, which is a project of the Grace Communications Foundation. Special thanks to Dakota Graff, Bartholomew Jones, and Anna Canning. You can find us at www.foodprint.org, where we have this podcast, as well as articles, reports, a food label guide, and more.